people like to give and people want to help, but a lot of times they don't know how. And that's where I think nonprofit organizations can play a role in educating folks across the board, wealthy, non-wealthy, regardless of socioeconomic background. Inform, inspire, and evolve. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind. Join host Lindsay Simons in a friendly conversation about contributing to good as we bring together community, positivity, and energy to the business of generosity. Welcome your host, Lindsay Simons. Hello, Creating Community for Good podcast listeners. This is Lindsay Simons, your host. I took a few months off of podcasting in order to reacquaint myself with my hometown, Denver, Colorado, after being gone for about 13 years. And I'm thrilled to be back home working on projects from feasibility studies to capital campaigns, executive coaching, looking into corporate engagement foundation strategies, and of course, major gift strategies. I've continued to do board trainings and retreats, and I am thrilled to be continuing my practice here in Denver, but also across the country. So if you are interested and support with fundraising strategies or relationship management and executive coaching, let me know. I'd be happy to have a conversation with you. For now, let's get back to the podcasting world. So this is a learning process, right? The concept here is creating community for good. My hope is that I'm also, I'm sharing insights and learnings and strategies, but also having real and authentic conversations, talking about trends, talking about motivations, talking about hope and inspiration. The conversations are meant to be something that is enjoyable to listen to while you're out on a walk or making a drive, you're commuting. But also I tend to take really detailed notes here for the show notes. And I hope that you do too, because I do think that there are some amazing nuggets here from some of my guests that are truly experts in the space of philanthropy. Now, some of our guests are fundraising experts. Some of them are executive directors. Some of them are founders. Some of them are consultants. We also have donors. We have board members. We have volunteers. And the idea here is really just getting an angle or perspective from anybody who is involved in trying to improve our society. And I'm really excited about today's conversation. This is the first and only conversation that I've actually done with somebody for a second time in the podcast. And the reason I'm doing this is because the leadership and insights are so profound. I think that it's worth it. So today we have Rick Happy. He is the principal and managing director of CCS Fundraising and has been my mentor and boss for many years. While I run Lindsay Simons Consulting, I've also done over a decade's worth of work with CCS as a vice president and senior consultant. So I'm thrilled to have him here. We're going to talk about the state of philanthropy, what we learned in 2020 based on Giving USA's report, which is an annual report documenting trends and movement in the space of philanthropy. And then Rick and I are going to talk a little bit about power dynamics and some of the incredible shifts we've seen in trust-based philanthropy, thanks to a few mega donors. So tune in and let me know what you think. I'm always open to hearing thoughts and learning as I'm learning and growing, and I'm sharing my learnings along the way. That's the goal of this. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of my community. Tune in, subscribe using Apple. And if you haven't signed up for my newsletter, please do go to lindsaysimonsconsulting.com. And then there's a podcast tab and you'll get a pop-up that says, please subscribe. So please do that. And I'm happy to keep you in the loop around new podcast entries and updates that we've got to share. 
All right, let's go. This is uh, so enjoyable. So my name is Rick Happy. I'm a principal and managing director at CCS. In September of 2021, we'll have been at the firm for 35 years. And in 2022, CCS celebrates its 75th year. So I'm personally proud of it, also very proud of in terms of the firm. When we talked in May of 2020, we were really in the depths of COVID. There was so much uncertainty. Our president of our firm, John Kane, um, at the time was likening it to a storm in which we had no visibility. Some of the things I'm about to say to you about our reflections in the last 18 months and really the philanthropy and giving, I can't believe I'm saying because I wouldn't have believed that 18 months ago in May of where things are right now as it relates to philanthropy. I think I would have predicted in May of 2020 that philanthropy would decline, not a ton, but considerably, that the economy would decline. And we had a really strange outcome in 2020. Giving actually increased from 2019 to 2020 by about 5%. And total giving in 2020 was $471 billion. Conversely, the gross domestic product declined. Those two things track so closely, giving and the gross domestic product. We don't believe there's ever been an instance where that has occurred, where the gross domestic product declined and giving increased. I think there's a lot of reasons for this. One of the things I would say is I think people, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit about Mackenzie Scott. People like Mackenzie Scott really stepped up in extraordinary ways. I think foundations really stepped up in extraordinary ways. Foundation sector was the fastest growing sector or had increased the most from 2019 to 2020. A lot of foundations threw some of their guidelines out the window. And so we need to be responsive to uh, human service, social service, health organizations in May of 2020, in the summer of 2020 and beyond. So I do think that the response was quite positive, quite overwhelming. One of the things we've learned is how adaptable everyone has been. Our clients that we work with across the sector have been so adaptable that there wasn't sort of this sense of a stampede or panic that, you know, we're going to just hit the brakes, but that organizations adapted and they made changes. You can see a lot of this with galas and events that just went online. They just shifted their focus. You know, being a Denver native, that the Beaux-Arts Ball is a huge event every year. It's National Jewish's signature event. And it was February or March of 2021. The Beaux-Arts Ball was virtual. And it raised more money than any other Beaux-Arts ball in history. What a great and fun event that is for people in Colorado to attend. But donors and supporters, board members of National Jewish, really stepped up to support that. We sort of saw that across the board. And I often reflected when I, when I talked to donors I'd, or clients, I'd say, how are you guys doing? They'd say, oh, we had a record year. <laughs> like we did better than we ever, we ever thought. So I think that people stepped up in extraordinary ways. Foundations did. And I think we organizations made adapted to this environment, to the Zoom environment, to the virtual environment in ways that took me by surprise. And I hope and I think we're going to be able to carry some of these positive changes with us into the future. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say your perspective is so positive, classic, true to form with your character and appreciate that. (laughs) But also there are so many small nonprofits who shut doors who had to do major layoffs, who had to merge, actually. And I think that's a beautiful thing. We talked about that last year, the importance and value of some organizations being stronger together and reducing their extra overhead by joining forces. Have you had any thoughts on what are some of the not-so-rosy perspectives for the organizations who didn't see that incredible uptick of giving and they didn't see the same level of steadiness and adaptability 
Yeah, it's really a helpful check. And I appreciate you saying that because there are a lot of organizations that function really well when there are disasters or terrible things happening. Yeah, Human service, social service, disaster relief organizations. I'm certain that after Hurricane Ida, you will see huge upticks to giving to American Red Cross and organizations like that, Mm -hmm. which I know that's not what they want. They want to do that in a sustainable way. What we saw in 2020, and I think we're going to continue to see, actually only two sectors declined. Mm -hmm. Healthcare, healthcare, which surprised me a little bit, because you think about all the focus on the pandemic, it declined about 3%. I think some of that was a lot of healthcare organizations in those first three to four months did a lot of emergency fundraising. I think they felt like they had kind of righted the ship and then giving kind of a shift to other places. Performing arts organizations really struggle Mm. and are going to continue to struggle as long as the pandemic persists. And that's a huge issue, I think, for those organizations, because as much as you can do virtually and as much as they try to do things virtually, it is going to be a challenge. And I also think to your point about smaller, struggling non nonprofit organizations, and it wasn't just smaller ones. We received a, an email yesterday from a very, very well-known uh, healthcare organization that's asked us, uh, that is said to us, we're, we're going to issue an RFP and we would love if you guys responded. And we, we've got to make up some of the gains from the RIF we, that took place last summer. And I actually had to think for a second, what's an RIF? And then I remembered a reduction in force was something people were talking about for the first six to nine months of the pandemic. You know, we had to reduce staff. We had an RIF. We had to have furloughs, kind of that stuff because the economy right now and, and jobs kind of the job market being tight. And for our industry, you kind of forgot about that. But there was some real pain in 2020 to smaller nonprofits that were shuttered, the small businesses that were shuttered, and even large nonprofits that had to lay off folks and um, you know had to reduce their staff size. So the positive on that is, I think you're right, some of the smaller nonprofits that probably should have should be merged with larger organizations that happened. But then we lost some that are we're probably not going to get back. And I think that's a tragedy of, of the pandemic. We lost a lot of donors in the Great Recession that we never got back. Mm. And I worry a little bit about that too, Lindsay, that are we going to be talking in 2025 and looking back on 2020 and 2021 and the data is telling us that, yeah, giving still is increasing, but that's because wealthier and more affluent people are giving more. We are now seeing fewer donors. That's a long-term problem for philanthropy because you cannot build robust alumni programs, robust grateful patient programs, robust membership programs from just a small group of people. You need a wide group of people who are donors. And I think that's going to be a huge challenge for nonprofit organizations and people like me and you in our space to have to think concurrently about, yes, we want to help nonprofits raise as much money as possible while at the same time opening or increasing the number of donors, whether it's a dollar or a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. Yeah. Right. And 2020, Giving USA reported that 20 million households stopped giving. So what we're seeing statistically is that the rich are getting richer, poor are getting poorer, and the money is reflected that way in terms of philanthropy. And it's that middle ground, that middle bucket that is slowing down on spending and slowing down on giving. And as you said, this is a trend we've been seeing since the Great Recession, but it just continues to increase. So This podcast is not about how to get everyday people to become more philanthropic as a primary interest, but it's definitely a secondary or sub-interest. Part of the the essence of this is creating community for good. That's the podcast name. That's the essence. How do you feel like we could create a sense of community for people who are not giving? How can we engage those donors? 
who are not going to be those seven-figure givers that we're looking at for our major capital campaigns, but they're the everyday sustainers. They're those people who give year after year, the the alumni you're talking about, the grateful patients, the people who went to the symphony years back, and they want to see society continue to flourish, so they want to give. Like, How do you think that we can best engage with those community members who've stopped engaging with philanthropy? So the data is not great. It's not on our side. In 2005, families that earned a million dollars or more accounted for 12% of charitable deductions. In 2018, families that earned a million dollars or more accounted for 33% of charitable deductions. That's a a huge issue. What I think we can help organizations, where I think one of the challenges, income inequality is a huge issue in this country for sure. And it's a huge issue in philanthropy. Another issue I think where I think is more fixable maybe than income inequality right now is donors who give $10 or $100, I don't think they believe their gifts are having an impact. And I think one of the reasons they don't believe that is the organizations they support don't tell them. Only one in five organizations, Lindsay, tells its donors how impactful their gifts are. That's a pretty loose statistic that we have. One in five. One in five. And donors tell us, you know, CCS, we do thousands and thousands of feasibility study interviews every year. Donors we interview tell us overwhelmingly that impact is their number one motivator. It's not taxes. It's not recognition. It's not even who asked them. It's not Mm. the case for support writ large. Is my gift going to be impactful. Mm. That's why I'm going to be supportive. So organizations, I think, have to do a better job of reminding their donors and inviting their donors in that your gift, whether it's $100 or a million dollars, is going to be impactful Mm -hmm. in a very, very specific way. Now, I also think we have to open philanthropy has been a predominantly white space. Mm -hmm. And that has to change too if we are going to, as you said, widen the Mm -hmm. funnel. We have to do a better job inviting communities of color and not just boards, not just leadership and volunteers, but as donors as well. Mm -hmm. Because we know as well that across the board, the generosity of donors is consistent regardless of uh, race, ethnicity, religious background, or any, anything like that. Mm. So I just think organizations have to do a better job of widening the funnel by inviting communities and people of color more broadly into their work. Mm. And I don't, I, I just think we collectively, and that's the royal we, haven't done a good enough job at that. Mm-hmm. And we know that wealth is not an indicator of generosity. We know that giving has always been communal. And that's why giving circles today are having a new day. Something that I've been observing is the essence of creating either giving circles or community drives and a lot more of the grassroots fundraising is taking off. And I think we're seeing that not only in like community centers, like in churches and affinity groups, but we're definitely seeing it online. So social was the area that grew the most in giving in uh, in 2020, right? It was. Yeah. Social services. Oh, sorry. I don't mean social services, but yes, that is true. What I meant was social online giving. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Absolutely. But go ahead. What were you going to say? The year after 9-11, 60% of the families in this country earning $15,000 or less made a charitable contribution to a 9-11 related organization. Wow. Well, think about that. Yeah. So when you, and your point about social 
in terms of giving, I think those vehicles can really widen the funnel in much more effective ways. Mm -hmm. I think regardless of socioeconomic dynamics, everyone in some ways, and I'm maybe a little bit of hyperbole, everyone has access, online access, Mm -hmm. whether it's a phone or except in maybe more distant rural areas where there isn't broadband. But for the most part, online access is available And I think we have to also do, and I keep saying do a better job, and I know it sounds trite, of using all the tools at our disposal to engage people at all levels of giving. And I think what we do is we make decisions based upon resources and think if we're going to raise a million dollars, we have to spend our resources on the 10 or 20 people who are going to help us raise 90 or 95% Mm -hmm. of that rather than the 100 or 1,000 people where we're going to help build our pipeline and invite them into the organization and supporting this work. I mean, one of the things I always say, we did this last night with one of our clients, we went through a solicitation training exercise. Mm -hmm. People like to give and people want to help, but a lot of times they don't know how. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think nonprofit organizations can play a role in educating folks across the board, wealthy, Mm non-wealthy, regardless of socioeconomic background. Yeah. And as I was preparing for this conversation, Rick, I was listening to the podcast that we did last year and I loved it. So I'm just going to hype that up. So anybody who's listening, go back and listen to it. It's awesome to just compare and contrast some of the conversation we had then with today. And it was a lot of full circle conversations. Like we were talking about the importance of communication and those organizations that had had success getting through the early stages of the pandemic then six or however many weeks in we were to now today, they're the ones who picked up the phone. And that was the number one thing that you said, Rick, was that the best form of communication for the leadership in times of crisis is to pick up the phone and have quick phone calls and using text message, using email, using social, whatever it is, but really trying to focus first on making it personal and then getting into systems of routine. So having like a communication plan for 12 months that includes updates and progress and references to past messages. 100%. I think that is what I hope is one of the lessons out of this that Uh organizations will continue to benefit from. We never, I be careful to say never, we didn't hear from organizations saying we're getting criticized for over-communicating or we're getting pushback for over-communicating. People just wanted, they wanted to know how the organization was doing. And it wasn't so much what the organization saying, how are you doing? It was, how are you guys doing? How can I be helpful? And that kind of communicating I hope continues because I think that's that's probably one of the reasons why giving continued to increase in 2020 after 2019. Yeah. Okay, here's a curveball for you. And then I want to start going into thinking about power dynamics of donors. Yeah. Have you seen any organizations really fumble or fall flat that did take the recommendation you gave, which is stay the course? Your advice during the pandemic and during the Great Recession was stay the course. Now, Tell me a story, an anecdote. Is it true that staying the course is always the best recommendation? Were there any scenarios where you saw that fall flat and what could we learn from that scenario? I think, Lindsay, the staying the course is always the right advice. The caveat being, unless there are circumstances within the organization that are affecting the organization, there is lack of confidence in the CEO, Mm. the board. There's a bad dynamic between the CEO and the board. The staff, there's been a lot of turnover in the staff. Look, those kinds of things happen in uh, robust economic times and challenging economic times. But I think you asked the question about staying the course. I'm really searching, and I don't think there's any organization where we said, hey, stay the course. It doesn't mean that everything turned out well. Mm -hmm. A lot of these organizations that we said stay the course have had to maybe extend their 
campaign timelines mm-hmm. have maybe had to adjust their goal or their what the the priorities for their case for support. But we didn't see any backsliding mm-hmm. from organizations where we said stay the course and it turned out to be the wrong move. In fact, I'm thinking about several organizations that didn't stay the course, that did hit pause. Yeah. And now here, here we are in September 2021 and we're getting uh, phone calls and emails saying, hey, can we meet <laughs> tomorrow? to talk about getting our campaign started. Immediately? <laughs> Yesterday? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And that's not where that's not where you want to be. Yeah. Well, and I would agree with that. I had a scenario where a client of mine paused for a period of time and they then said, we really need some help because we now have to figure out how, how to message the fact that we haven't been in touch. And we had asked them for a gift nine months ago and we haven't given them a progress report. And we haven't asked for more money. So we have like just gotten off the station, but we haven't actually left. The train hasn't really left. And that was an awkward position for the client to be in where they said, mea culpa, and that's okay. And we can do that. We can do that. And we can talk to donors that way. And donors do respond well because they know it was a crazy time. Everybody knows it was a crazy time. There's a huge amount of empathy right now. But I would say that for any organization that did pause and that does want to get started again, It's so important to start with saying, here's what we did in the last 12 months or 18 or however long it was since we've talked and let them know, yes, apologies for not being in touch, but here's what we've been working on, staying afloat and we're ready to get back and drive forward. Is there any phrasing that you would say, would you adjust what I've just said? Or what do you think about how do folks get back on track? I think what you said is perfect. I mean, yeah. look, it's it's easy for me to criticize some an organization for hitting the brakes and now wanting to get started. It's never too late to get started. Yeah. It's never too late to get on track. And I think your point, there's a lot of empathy out there. Yeah. I think we hear this term all the time, you know, like give them some grace. Donors yeah. are going to give you grace as an organization. They want to be helpful. Now, look, they may, you're going to see some donor priority shifting Mm -hmm. because of the pandemic, but also maybe because they didn't hear from you for 12 months, you might have to kind of reassess where those donors are and make some decisions. So I guess that is a downside, but the longer you wait, the more opportunity there is for people to reassess their giving and you don't want them to do that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So speaking of giving and why people give, how people give, Mackenzie Scott has been a disruptor. And we have had a lot of conversations, Rick, offline that were exciting, heated, thinking about what's happening and why and how can we perpetuate this. So in sort of your own words, how would you phrase what Mackenzie Scott's doing? I think it's transformational. And I know that's kind of an overused term, but we just haven't really seen someone do this in the way she's done this in the last year because it's sort of, Amazing if you think about it. She's making impactful gifts to thousands of organizations. Yeah. And let's talk about what she's At least doing. Because not everybody has yeah. been saying. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. So do you want to talk about that? Go ahead. Okay. So you know, Mackenzie <laughs> Scott, she is obviously enormous financial resources. Uh, former husband is the founder of Amazon. And she set out to start to give away her fortune which continues to increase because it's mostly Amazon shares to a wide array of nonprofit organizations throughout the country. And what she has done, she's engaged in an organization called the Bridgespan Group, which does great work in the nonprofit space to help identify those organizations. And the stories that we've heard from our clients were, we got a phone call. We've had several of our clients say, we thought it was a prank. I, I know, have heard the story, same thing, they, they actually. Wanted, yeah. It yeah. was like a 30-minute quick interview. We didn't know who was calling or why. They wouldn't tell us. Then there was a million dollars in our deposit. <laughs> totally. 
and so she has been making gifts of a million dollars to ten million dollars to I think hundreds, maybe even at the point this point, thousands of organizations around the country. And what she has done that I think so I think there's a number of pieces to this that make it so extraordinary and transformational. She has made rapid decisions. I'm gonna we're gonna call you, you're gonna give us some information about the organization, and within seven to ten days, we're gonna notify you of a gift amount. And we are not going to ask you for reams of data or reports or feedback. We're just going to give you the money. And we want you to spend it in the way that you think will be most impactful for your organization. I think there's two pieces to this, Lindsay, for these organizations. First of all, every time we talk about Mackenzie Scott, people say to me, well, what's the, what, how do we get into CR? I'm like, yeah, I don't that's know. That's the first oh, question. <laughs> I think it's one thing is, it's now becoming, we received a gift from Mackenzie Scott. We now have the imprimatur of this really savvy, generous philanthropist who has chosen our organization to give $2 million or $4 million or $10 million. So put the money to the side for a second. It's her sort of stamp of approval. Stamp of approval. Yeah, Huge message that. for donors yeah. who give to that organization. And the second piece of it is, is the literal money. I mean, that she's giving gifts to places that are changing their world. You know, a very, very well-known philanthropist and businessman, who I don't want to quote by name, said to me years ago, he said, you know, if you give $5 million to a healthcare medical organization, it moves, it barely moves the needle. You give $5 million to an arts organization and it changes their world. And I think what Mackenzie Scott has done for a lot of organizations, they're not all arts organizations for sure. I think she's changed a lot of worlds. And I also think what's really, really important about Mackenzie Scott is she's changing the way other people of enormous financial capacity are thinking about. Now, I don't know that can be backed up with data. It's all very new, but I have to believe you're going to start seeing shifts in how people at the highest wealth levels are giving their money away. Maybe fewer strings, Mm. less constrained, less oversight, faster decisions more impactful decisions. And I think that we could be on a new course here. I don't want to get over my skis. I just don't know. But I really feel that she's she's really breaking norms here in a way in philanthropy that it's almost like we've been waiting for this person mm-hmm. and now she's here and it really could be a, a turning point in philanthropy, especially for those at the highest levels. Yeah. I, I really see before my time, philanthropy was very much tied to First, it was your social gathering, your neighborhood, your community, your religious organization. Then it became a corporate thing. So then the, a big corporate entity would tie itself to a big, like a March of Dimes as an example, right? So a national legacy organization and a national corporation, and they were lockstep. And then it became more of this, the scrutiny, the looking at the ROI, looking at the business investment? What's the return on investment? Let's look at this. Let's look at impact and evaluation. That industry skyrocketed about two decades ago of evaluators coming in and saying, let's get the stats. Let's understand exactly where your dollar goes. Let's put zero overhead, dollar for dollar investment. And we've talked about this on the last podcast and others, but the whole ROI thing becoming way too skewed and the importance of having sustainability, overhead, long-term vision, et cetera. And now I think that Mackenzie Scott is sort of maybe leveling the playing field or what's the word? Like maybe bringing the pendulum back to a middle ground. Maybe that's the analogy I want to use, but 
she's really coming yeah. back to like, let's use trust-based giving. Let's give when with liberation. Let's give with abundance. And let's see how we can help our community and our society to do better rather than holding them on a chain and a leash and trying to evaluate constantly. Because that really backs your nonprofits into a corner. And then it becomes like this hamster wheel that nobody actually benefits from. Nobody wants those restrictions and ties. Some are important, of course. Let me like not get too far out there. You know, we do need to have some credibility and some proof of work and vision, of course. But I think that what this is doing, as you've said, is just inspiring people to think back to human to human connection, trust-based philanthropy, generosity for the sake of true impact over time. One of our clients is this incredible organization called the Ms. Foundation for Women. You know, yeah. it's based off, founded off of Ms. Magazine. And the Ms. Foundation supports women and girls of color. And yes. they make grants to organizations that support women and girls of color. So they've always had this philosophy that we are going to give you grants. It's trust-based giving. We're not going to ask you for reams and reams of data. We want to make sure that your time is spent delivering on your programs yeah. and being impactful. So I think you're right. I think we got carried away with all of this ROI and cost per dollar raised. I'm not saying, you know, it's not important. You don't want to be irresponsible. Right. But the point is to be impactful on the programs that the organization serves, not to spend your time really siphoning through data that only points to one metric, which is cost per dollar raise, maybe or administrative funds compared to the metric of, are we doing yeah. what we are supposed to be doing as a nonprofit organization? Are we delivering on our services and on our programs in a way that is helping to move the needle. Yeah, that's right. And so what would you say is the best advice nowadays for people who are trying to become, they're doing impact reports, they're doing case for support, they're writing down what their work is. And while it may not be all ROI, stats and stories are the two that usually need to be paired. But what else, what are some of the messages that you're seeing that are the most compelling that are making your donors think a different way of like, yeah, actually I do want to partner with you. Hang on. I want to like stop being in charge of something I'm not actually informed to be in charge of. You can be in charge. Like it's this, this power play shift that I want to figure out, like, how are we giving donors the space to relinquish some of the control, giving it back to the nonprofits, letting them know I've got this and we've got this and support us and trust us. And here we go. Like, this is what your giving will do to us. Have you seen any you know, language that's particularly effective? It's sort of funny because I was asked this question last night with one of our, the, the, we were doing this training exercise for an organization we work with. And one of the co-chairs of their campaign said, what do we do about someone who comes in and says, hey, I know these are sort of the three buckets for the campaign priorities, but I want to give right, way over okay. here. And I said, look, the answer to that is if way over here is outside of your strategic priorities, you have to have a conversation with this person and say, these are our strategic priorities. And this is why we believe your investment here is most important. If they want to give to something that's within your strategic priorities, that it's more of aligned with what the institution is doing, accept it. But don't accept a gift. Don't accept a gift that is way outside of your strategic priorities. And we've had institutions not accept gifts that are outside of their strategic priorities. And it has not negatively impacted them because the institutions have... Now, here, there's some of the dynamics, strong leadership, a willingness to say no, you know, that we're, we know our priorities are X, Y, and Z. They're not A, B, and C. And we understand those are your priorities, but our job is to tell you why you should support X, Y, and Z. 
I, I do think generally donors do trust the organizations they support. That's why they support them. And I think sometimes we've got to kind of step back here and, and keep that in mind that if we are strong in our messaging about these are our priorities, if we're, again, of our leadership, if we're aligned in that messaging, there isn't that much pushback. There is pushback. And I think that is where organizations have to be firm. And that's easy for the consultant and me to say that. I understand that. But uh, we've also found that when organizations do push back and say, hey, look, these are our priorities. This is why the donors respect and appreciate that. And they don't necessarily take their ball and go home. Yeah. And it sounds like it's behavioral science, right? Because as soon as you start seeing a leader have boundaries, you start wanting to follow that leader and jump in and see like, well, what if we can't go there, where can we go? Or even just having the leader of the nonprofit say things like, I need to be a good steward of the money that we have. And we have to give them or put the money towards the programs that have the best legs or that are working. And that's what our strategic priority is in order to be fulfilling our mission. That is precisely right. And I think that, again, it's you put yourself in the leader's shoes and sometimes it can be challenging to have to say to a donor, you know, that's just not where we are right now as an organization or an institution. And let me talk to you about this stuff and maybe forego significant support. But again, if it's a long game, if you're really playing this as long, you can be successful. Well, and speaking of the long game, something that I really enjoyed hearing from you last year was that during the recession, the Great Recession, 2008-9, we were in the middle of a capital campaign that I ended up working on, UCSF Medical Center, and they didn't bat an eye. They kept going, they charged on. And then when we talked last year, you said, and boy, are they grateful because the hospitals are open and they're treating the people who need it today. And that gave me chills hearing that again, because I mean, could that be any more like that's the that's a perfect ecosystem life cycle of an organization. So today in 2021, let's think about what is coming in the next five, 10, 20 years for sure. Another recession, right? I mean, could we can we easily say that we're now on this trajectory where there's going to be a major recession or issue crisis about every decade? What do you think is like reasonable? Everything that's happened in the last 18 months, I'm waiting for oh, I think that's I'm hearing nice. a lot of cicadas, just so you know. It's giving me a lot of creeps, you know, every yeah, single day. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, like a, a, a great recession, a great recession would be the best <laughs> thing. Take that. That okay. All right, great. Mr. Happy. <laughs> I, I do think that just planning wise, you know, you can never predict the economy. And you, you can't predict these kinds of things. I just think it's useful as any entity to always keep in mind that However good things are right now, over the next decade, you've got a plan for a economic downturn. You may have to, here in California, where I am, Lindsay, you know, we have this terrible fires right now in Lake Tahoe. We had terrible fires in Northern California. That's becoming more and more part of the, sadly, the rhythm of life in the late summer and the falls in California. So there are certain things that, that's a different subject, but we're, you have to factor in all of these things. I know as we think about our business, you love to chart the line that goes like this, right? But I just look at our business historically and you know it's always yeah. like- Instead of going straight up, it's up and down and up and down. Yeah. Things you can't control. So you, know, you have to be, just be prudent and conservative yeah. in your planning right. over time because that will 
help you in the end. It's, I think right now it's a pretty volatile environment we have. And I, I know we've talked about this. The news is nothing but bad, right? Whether it's Ida or Afghanistan or Haiti had this horrific earthquake, what, two weeks ago? And we stopped talking about it. It's, it hasn't been on the news in, in days and days. We're, the pandemic kind of persists. It goes on. So there you have to kind of, I think we are in a pretty unique moment. And I think that hopefully in the next six to nine months, when we get to a point where the pandemic has, we're in better control of it, I'm hopeful, then I think that we'll start to see things that people will maybe revert to some of the ways where they worked previously or lived previously. And we can take a little bit of a longer term view. It does feel like it's been a lot of crisis planning and crisis management the last 18 months, which has not been fun. Yeah. And it's just fatigue after fatigue. And, and it's just, I think people are exhausted. But I do think that the messaging has, it can be really valuable to have messaging to donors that we are building an endowment. You know, we're creating a, a rainy day fund. We are planning for, you know, that conservative way of thinking, like we're planning for the uncharted territory. And we know now that it's so critical for us to not go into panic mode where we have to do all the layoffs. The second that a crisis hits, we need to have financially sound and stable businesses that happen to be serving our community and therefore we're getting a tax write-off. Like that's what nonprofits are. I think that we need to stop thinking of nonprofits as like charity and just, you know, just contributing a little bit here and there as much as they are staples in our society. They're part of our fabric. They're a huge part of our function. We couldn't operate without them. I mean, I think, I don't know who, I don't know who said this, but uh, some famous person in history said, you know, nonprofit organizations are the key component to a civic, civil society and a democracy to having these kinds of organizations. You don't have nonprofit organizations the way we do in America in autocracies or totalitarian regimes. I think I'm a little worried. I have to confess. I thought in 2020, I said a lot of times COVID's really opened a window or shined a light on vulnerability of nonprofit organizations. But then you look at giving in 2020 actually exceeded in 2019. Have we already forgotten that lesson? I mean, I just, I'm worried about that. Like you have to build a reserve fund. You have to continue to build a robust endowment. And that and putting money to work aren't in conflict. You can do both. But I do worry a little bit that while things are sort of have taken off, you know, the markets have, the stock markets have continued to be very strong. Are we already forgetting that lesson? And I hope not because you're right. The next recession, it's going to be like, oh my God, we've got to lay off a third of the staff and, you know, we've got to close this and close that. And that's what you don't want to have happen. Yeah. The amount of sub-crises we've had from the primary star, mm -hmm. it's just, it's been tragic. So Rick, a couple closing questions for you. What does community mean to you? It's such an important question to all of this. I mean, I think community, as I think about the last, again, last 18 months, what's been driven home to me is the importance of, it's not just family, but it is the and people that you work with, but the organizations that you support, that if those organizations didn't exist, we would really be in a very, very difficult environment right now. I look at the food banks that we work with. I look at the healthcare organizations, the research institutions, the human service organizations. To me, that is the community. That kind of bulwark of basic human needs is, it's not to discount other organizations in the space, but I think that is the community that has really risen and held, and really been held up. I think about the healthcare workers in this environment, 18 months into this pandemic, I mean, you talk about exhausted, they must be beside themselves, but they just go back to work every single day. And it's inspiring. So that's when I think about community. I think about those who are doing the most good for the most vulnerable at the most mm. critical time. Yeah, I love that. Would you say that 
you've dedicated your life to supporting philanthropy and community because it's your mission or is it because it is your skill set? Yeah, my skill set is very limited, Lindsay, so I hope it's not my (laughs) skill set. I do think that what really motivates me, and I think it motivates you and it motivates people at CCS and a lot of other places is you are making a difference. And it might not be huge, but you're making a difference. And I I hear this from our colleagues all the time. You know, when I come home from work, I do do feel like we've made a difference. Like what the work we're doing is to borrow your phrase, creating a community for good. So I do think it's more about the mission than it is about the skill set. I mean, the skill set's a, a part of it, but it's not the most important part of it. Yeah, I just asked you that because I've been thinking about that so much lately with you know my my soul's journey and thinking about like what is my purpose here as a human, and then I think about my work as the vehicle to get a lot of it done. Right, I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, what gives you hope, Rick? What inspires you and lights you up and makes you feel positive? I have to tell you, I was in March and April of 2020. I was wake up every day thinking it was panic. We got to save this company. We got to save our clients. We got to save ourselves. And what really gives me hope is the way that everybody rallied, that our clients, our colleagues, our friends, you know, people just stepped up in a way that I, um, I'm still inspired by, but I just think that that's, that is the message. We just don't, I, I, maybe I should have had more faith, but this was such a storm that, you know, it's like you're sitting on the beach and all of a sudden there's a tidal wave on top of you. That gives me hope that the way we have made our way through this, and it's not been without a lot of pain and a lot of tragedy and a lot of it needless, sadly enough. One of our colleagues who you know well, Nicole Stratton, she's part of an organization called Marked by COVID. And Marked by COVID is an organization that was started when the, the death of the founder's father and how it was needless. And they have really done incredible work of messaging around how COVID has transformed families and how there's not there's not a return to normal. We're not, no, there's not. We've lost, there's no longer back to normal. We lost more than 600,000 people in this country alone. But what does the future look like? And I think it's organizations like that that are also, that also give me hope that people who in their worst moments, the worst moments of their lives, think about what can I do to help others who may go through this, or I hope don't go through this. And I think, I think that's, that, that really is a sense of hopefulness for me. Yeah, I feel that as well. Any final parting advice or words? Any last message? That Keep like doing what you're doing, kid. This is great stuff. And I think <laughs> oh, it's an important me, message. Thank you. And, <laughs> I appreciate yeah, that. I Keep appreciate your support, Rick. Because these podcasts are great. And I think the more messaging oh. we can use to reach more people, the better. So I, I love what you're doing. Oh, wow. That's not what I expected you to say, but you've made me blush. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rick. Uh, Your leadership means really a lot to me and mentorship and your support along the journey, along my journey has meant a tremendous amount to me. So thank you for being here and thank you for your constant support and have a beautiful day. You too. And we will have in the show notes, all of these notes here. So for anybody listening, we'll have notes and we'll have how you can get in touch with Rick and CCS or me or anything else that you want to learn about. That's it. Shine on. And thank you. Thanks, Lens. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Bye. I probably didn't tell you this, but my dad, right after he heard it, he was like, oh my God, now I see why you appreciate Rick so much. He's an amazing man. It was <laughs> really touching. Funny. He was like, I'm so happy you've had a boss like that. I had no oh, idea. That's sweet. It's so nice. It thank you for saying so that. So sweet. That's sweet. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah.
Thank you again for listening to Creating Community for Good podcast. This is Lindsay Simons, your host. If you need any kind of support in fundraising strategy or consultation, please feel free to reach out to me directly and I'll be happy to steer you in the right direction or offer my services. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Shine on. With this latest valuable episode, we'd love to thank you for joining us on the Creating Community for Good podcast. If you found today's show valuable, simply visit our website, creatingcommunityforgood.com to leave a review as well as to get access to additional resources and relevant links from this show. Stay tuned for more episodes.